P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Can oil break out of this $50 to $55 a barrel uh, range? I I don't know the answer, but John Kilduff perhaps does. John Kilduff, he is founding partner of, again, Capital, who has gotten it right again and again with where the price of oil is going. So, John, uh, you know, where do you see this sort of tenuous truce in the Middle East about not producing too much more oil uh, going? And do you think that we we could break out of this range um, either way? Well, yeah. First, good morning. Good morning, good morning. to you. And uh, I think you have to give them certainly some credit. The the OPEC and, and non OPEC producers like Russia that came together to try and cut looks like they've achieved about eighty five percent of their efforts. Uh, the problem is that there's several notable countries not part of the deal: uh, Iraq, Iran in particular, and Nigeria and Libya, all of whom were sort of written off in terms of not being able to grow their output much more. And it turns out they're coming back uh, like gangbusters. Um, also, too, we're heading into now the end of the winter season, which brings a sort of shoulder season demand period to the northern hemisphere globally, uh, which I think is going to complicate the picture uh, uh, for these guys and, and I think dash their hopes. So to answer your question, I, I see it's uh, breaking out to the downside here, I think, you know, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Hey, uh, John, I wonder if you could put that together with the demand picture and maybe just, you know, give us the 30,000 foot view in terms of, all right, we're going into the peak driving season. It'll be the summertime in the northern hemisphere. Uh, You know, what percent of uh, production is that going to soak up and so on? Yeah, so the demand picture actually has been uh, rather soft, uh, particularly for refined fuels. Over the past several weeks here now, particularly in the U.S., we've been down on gasoline demand uh, 5 to 7%, which is uh, somewhat remarkable. Some of that is uh, a drop in exports, uh, but some of it uh, seems to be consumer response to the relatively uh, higher uh, gasoline prices already. Um, and unfortunately for the refiners, uh, we're, we have record inventories of gasoline on the East Coast, um, and, you know, we're continuing to see this, uh, this lackluster demand sort of hurt them. You saw Statoil uh, report today, um, as did uh, BP, and they both referenced the refining sector last quarter as, as being poor, which had been a bright spot. Part of this is being driven by uh, the Chinese, who sort of ramped up uh, a mini sort of boom in, in refining there, and which led to record exports during much of last year. So the whole world kind of got swamped. Uh, and refined products. So you're seeing today gasoline down about 2%, uh, down under $1.50 a gallon on the uh, NYMEX uh, commodity board. And um, the downward pressure, I think, is uh, is going to continue there. So um, also, too, we've seen a biggest slowdown in 26 years, uh, according to the latest data out of China, uh, for refined product growth, demand growth. So th- there continues to be a lot of issues around the whole complex. John, you said that you do think that we're going to break out to the downside. How low do you think oil prices could go? 
Yeah, I think if we can uh, if we can break the fifty dollar mark, there's no reason why we couldn't retrace all the way back down to the lows from November, uh, which was forty two dollars about. So I think it's uh, pretty easy for us to make an argument to to get back and, all the way back down there. And with forty two dollars a barrel, which companies would that disrupt the most? It's going to disrupt the um, the pure play producers. So it's going to it's going to hurt the Hess uh, companies like Hess, uh, Occidental Petroleum. Um, some of the uh, the shale players, Continental Resources, uh, companies like that will will, t- will take it on the chin. It may actually help uh, the refiners uh, perversely because they're they'll have much lower input costs, and um, it may spur more demand at the pump again just at the right time uh, as we hit the uh, peak summer travel season. So uh, what worked early last year it looks like it may work again early this year in terms of trying to play the energy patch. So, Let's all right, John, let, let's just keep this in mind. So we're, we're we're looking for oil prices to go lower for a variety of reasons, right? Yes. Okay. Now, is there any uh, value in connecting this to just the thought that oil is up about 11% since the November election? Nat gas is up on nearly 20% since the election. Uh, can you knit together a, a bigger picture for us? Well, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, obviously, all the, the entirety of the stock market and a lot of assets have risen on, on hope for relief and regulation and other uh, uh, pro-growth policies. The energy industry gets hurt in a big way. The refining industry gets hurt in a big way if this border tax adjustment uh, program were to be implemented. Um, also, too, you know, the, the oil, produ- oil producers need to be careful of too much of a good thing. Uh, to the extent that they were, they were to be you know, released hog wild to exploit hundreds of thousands of more acres and produce more and more oil, it's going to add to the glut, not take away from it, obviously. Wait, so hold on so, a second. So you don't think that there will necessarily be uh, as much drilling as perhaps President Trump will allow them to do by opening up federal lands, which is widely expected? Yes, uh, no, because, you know, a lot of federal land leases went unexploited during the Obama administration. You know, uh, U.S. producers cut back drastically with the price drop. So, you know, the U.S. in that regard is really the swing producer as much as Saudi Arabia these days, except that our policy is driven by economics, whereas the Saudis are trying to, uh, you know, dictate price from on high. Uh, but no, I, I think it'll be um, not as great a land rush as you might think, because prices are going to be challenged more and more, as we're already seeing right. the shale players ramp up. You know, uh, John, last week we were talking about the solar industry and how the prices for solar energy has dropped to the point where it's competitive, uh, at least with gas. Do you think that this is going to increasingly be a pressure on the oil industry, or is this a non-starter just because it's so small relatively? No, no, uh, very, very much so. I think it's, a, it's 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 become a big factor. Wind has become even a, a bigger factor. Um, it's, it's actually considered a conventional energy source now, not even a, a special sort of case renewable. Um, but the uh, what we're dealing with here, you got to keep in mind, is that it's a bigger pressure really for natural gas because oil still is 80 percent. A barrel of oil is still 80 percent of that barrel goes into transportation. Um, and we're still not seeing, obviously, solar cars, although we are starting to see more electric ones and, and really ones that are desirable by consumers like the ones Tesla produces. Uh, but for now, it's going to be a while. So oil is still the transportation fuel as opposed to what the electrical utility industry is going to have to be dealing with, with sort of decentralized uh, power generation from solar and now, importantly, the battery technology that's coming along with it. Thanks very much. John Kilduff, great stuff. Founding partner of Again Capital.
Let's learn more about what to do with your money in this uh, market that, uh, as Dave Wilson was earlier describing, we could be seeing uh, 2300 on the S&P 500. Tony Dwyer is the chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity, and he joins us now. Tony, thanks very much for uh, being uh, with us. Uh, give us your outlook, uh, and then maybe I would uh, throw in with that, uh, give us all the things that could go wrong with your outlook as well. Hey. Okay, that's that's probably better stated. Hey, Pim, thanks for having me on. And sure. Lisa. So uh, we believe that the next few weeks we're going to see a correction um, in the market somewhere around 5%. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're down a couple of percent in the new kind of trading world that we're in, everybody kind of gets scared that it's going to be a, a 10 to 15% correction. And we we want to be in a position to really aggressively buy that. Um, for the listeners to make this really super simple, um, the, you never want to be a net seller or negative on stocks until you have a recession in sight. Because any correction in the midst of a, a positive growth backdrop always comes back um, in pretty quick form and goes higher. So the only time you really want to be negative is if you can see a recession. And we don't see a recession for at least another couple of years. Wait, wait, hold on a second, Tony. You said next couple of weeks you see a 5% pullback uh, in stocks. This sort of conflicts with what we hear a lot, which is, I can't predict the next few weeks. I can maybe predict the next few years or, or give a sense of, of sort of the trend. Uh, but this stands out. Why such conviction about a time frame that's so near to us. Well, I, to be fair, I've been making the call since mid-December, and, and you know we turned neutral on the market in mid-December because we thought a lot of the positive um, data was already reflected in stocks, and you had an extreme overbought condition, and, and that's the case. Like for example, today, if you don't have a one percent move, I read on the Bloomberg that if you don't have an intraday one percent move, it'll match the longest period without a one percent uh, move in the market for this cycle. So you just have been in this period of very, very, very low volatility, and that typically comes to an end in a sharp way. And, and that doesn't mean that, you, you know, everybody should run for the hills because the fundamental backdrop is so good. You just have to be ready and expect it to happen. Um, so it, it's not just a it's not just a call that I've made today for the next three weeks. It's a call that we've been in since mid-December. Hey, Tony, I wonder if you could just bring in the concept of active investments. In other words, people picking stocks, plus you're in the earnings season. And I'm wondering if that might have anything to do with what happens to last price, because that's really what we're talking about. You're not talking about value. You're talking about how much someone is paying for something in the short term. Right. And the earnings backdrop has been really strong. Er, not, that's, that's not right. The earnings backdrop has been significantly improved from where it was a year ago or even two quarters ago because you're seeing a recovery in the commodities. And I think the story, guys, that, that nobody's really talking about is how good the global economy is acting. We're so focused on what President Trump is tweeting and the legislative. Well, it's interesting uh, because Lisa Abramowitz, hold on, Tony, because Lisa Abramowitz, you mentioned even just last week the economic performance in Europe uh, is better than many investors uh, believe on the surface. Right. So some people are actually going back to Sorry, Europe, Tony. an increasing number uh, of hedge funds. Um, but, but Tony, I want to get to your point, I mean, about just because of President Trump and some of his rhetoric, you know, dot, dot, dot. Seth Klarman, who is a very respected hedge fund manager, put out a letter in the past few weeks that was quoted in the New York Times, and he was saying that's important in and of itself. When you have a president, a leader, who puts, who makes volatility his strategy that could potentially upend a lot of the uh, order that we've seen in markets markets don't like uncertainty what do you say to that 
I think markets don't like uncertainty, but we've been uncertain since the summer of last year, and you have one of the lowest volatility periods on record. So right to this to this point, Seth is right. It's going to end up, and that's kind of our correction call. You, when you have such low volatility in an environment where so much rhetoric's coming out, you've got to you've got to believe that at some point it's going to come into play. What's amazing to me, and I think Seth and anybody else, is it hasn't yet. You've had such a, a, a narrow trading range of the market, despite so many issues being, you know, um, harshly uh, criticized and and uh, talked about back and forth. So again, what here's what I would urge the listeners to do. Invest your money based on what you know, not on what you fear. What we know is that even with increases in interest rates in the U.S., monetary policy, meaning you know credit, is in very, very good shape. The Fed is historically accommodative, right. even on a, another 50 to 75 basis right. points higher in yield. Yeah. Tony Dwyer, thank you so much for joining us. Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. Uh, there was a fascinating story that I really want to highlight that raises the question of the hardware and the integrity of the hardware behind uh, the giants of Apple, Google, and Facebook. I want to bring in Jordan Robertson, a technology reporter with Bloomberg News, who wrote the story. He is coming to us from Washington. Jordan, first, I just want to get a sense of how easy it would be to potentially manipulate the hardware that uh, sort of provides the infrastructure for Apple, Google, and Facebook before they even get it. Hi, sure. Yeah, you know, part of the problem with uh, supply chain security for these large technology companies is you know, the way the technology industry has evolved is that most of the code is proprietary for understandable reasons. Companies like Cisco, which make network switches that shuttle data traffic with very significant parts of these companies' networks, uh, you know, their business is selling the code and the hardware, and they don't open source it. They don't disclose that code to anybody else. The problem with that is if somebody is able to tamper with the process of creating that code, uh, you know, typically it would be a foreign government or even the U.S. government in some cases. Uh, you know, customers like Facebook or Google or Apple, you know, or LinkedIn or others have no way to check that code to to verify the presence or not of a government backdoor. This has taken on new life uh, after the Edward Snowden revelations of a few years ago. And companies are now starting to try to create some of that network switching code on their own. Hey, Jordan, a great story. Can you just describe a photograph uh, that really uh, kind of highlights what you're talking about? Just describe what's in this photograph, where it came from, et cetera. 
Sure. There's a very famous photograph that came out a couple years ago. Again, part of the Snowden leaks uh, was uh, was published in Glenn Greenwald's book on the Snowden leaks. Uh, and what it shows is, you know, uh, U.S. government officials, uh, federal agents, intercepting a, a piece of Cisco network uh, hardware equipment at a transmission at a distribution facility, probably at UPS or FedEx or some other uh, transit point. Very carefully opening the box and then taking it to a, a what they call a load station, which is a you know just a series of laptops uh, on the desk next to the um, the uh, the conference table, and loading it with you know basically malware with malicious code. And you know th- this photo really struck you know fear in the hearts of network operators throughout Silicon Valley. Uh, you know there were lots of things in the Snowden disclosures that struck fear in the hearts of data center people, but this one especially because what it showed them was. You know, uh, you know that the U.S. government uh, and others, uh, by extension, you know, are able to intercept you know this hardware. And again, when you talk about Cisco and Juniper and network equipment, this is central the, the brains of these networks. These are not just computer servers; these are switches that shuttle data traffic around these networks, and they see everything basically. Uh, they're the all-seeing eye. And you know, if you're able to intercept this equipment modify the software code on it uh, to maliciously spy on, you know, all the data traffic passing through these switches, uh, you know, you're able to get visibility into an entire network. Uh, And that's really scary for operators of large data centers because for an Internet company, their data is their lifeblood. You know, if they lose control of that, they lose control of the company. Hey, Jordan, uh, I think of this in terms of uh, for every problem that technology creates, technology with a heavy dose of experience and funding works to find a solution, right? There are the Open Compute Project, SnapRoot. Tell us about this. That's right. Yeah, so that, that's really the crux of the story today is that there's a company called SnapRoute uh, out of Palo Alto, California. They've just gotten $25 million in funding. You know, big VC announcements seem to happen every day or every week out in California. Uh, but what's interesting about them is this is a group of formal, former Apple engineers. Uh, you know, they've been designing their own network uh, technology for a while for performance and, and other reasons. But security became a really big focus for them. And they said, look, we need to have 100% visibility into our code. Uh, because we just simply can't trust that these proprietary technologies from Cisco and Juniper and others, uh, even if the companies have the best of intentions, you know, are not compromised at some point, uh, you know, along the way. Uh, so what they're saying is we're going to create an open source switch, network switch. This is actually a really big deal because open source technology has existed for a very long time in computing but it hasn't really migrated to the network switch level. And again, these are the brains of these computer networks. It's hard stuff to do. Uh, But what the the goal is is to give network operators at these big Internet Silicon Valley companies 100% visibility into what's happening on their network switches. What's the likelihood that this is going to fundamentally uh, disrupt Cisco's business? I'll tell you, Cisco's nervous. Cisco's very nervous. I talked with them for the story. You know, obviously, they, you know, Cisco is a huge competitor here. I mean, they control over half of the computer networking market. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. This is a very nascent, very small market. Right now, it's only the large data center operators, uh, including big banks as well, that are doing this. However, uh, there's a lot of value here because you can drop the price of this equipment by tens of thousands of dollars if you're willing to kind of take some ownership of the management of this stuff. So you could see this eventually 
actually, you know, evolving from just big data center operators, uh, you know, to smaller, uh, mid-sized and smaller companies. That's a ways off. Uh, but I will say Cisco and the other legacy technology vendors are very nervous because there are a lot of advantages to this technology. Some downsides, too, but some big advantages. Thanks very much for being with us and shedding light on this topic. Jordan Robertson, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, speaking about open compute projects, Snaproot, and challenges to Cisco. want to get uh, David Welch to bring him into the conversation. He's Detroit bureau chief. He covers uh, General Motors. And uh, David, can you give us some insight into why such a negative response from stock investors? Well, General Motors has really defied gravity all year long. The market's gotten a little bit softer or it's flattened. You've seen Ford pull back on their earnings forecast, and they've missed some of their numbers. And GM's been able to keep, uh, keep pushing the growth. They showed weaker margins, and they're showing growing inventories, which is, I think, giving some investors a little bit of worry that you know, maybe even GM is, is unable to, to keep the, uh, the profit train going with the market that's kind of flattening out a bit, maybe going a little bit soft. David, I was looking at the performance of General Motors stock uh, before today. It was up 14%. So you've got the drop today. This is from the election. Uh, up 14% since the election, the 4% drop today. So, I mean, the stock has already had a decent a run. Uh, did we learn anything today, the details of anything like uh, free cash flow or margins in China? What stood out to you in today's uh, uh, detailed report? The thing that jumped out at me the most was that in, in the fourth quarter, margins in North America fell, and that's really the profit horse. You know, China's a real moneymaker for them. It's about $2 billion a year, but then you look at the you know nine to ten billion a year that GM has been making lately, and you know all the rest of it and then some comes from North America. So you saw fourth quarter you saw margins go from ten percent a year ago to I think it was eight and a half percent roughly. That's it's not awful. It's a good performance, but it's it's headed in the wrong direction now. GM had a lot of reasons for this. They're saying that they've got a lot of SUVs coming to market uh, later this year that will really help margins. So they're in inventory build-out right now. Uh, and, and a lot of the cars uh, really still dominate their lot in terms of what they're offering consumers. And, and cars are out of favor and require a lot of incentives. They're saying, hey, the good stuff really isn't on the lot yet. When it is, we're going to make good money. And they did affirm their, their guidance that they'll again have record profits for 2017. But I think analysts and investors are looking at this and saying, hmm, margins in North America fell, inventories are higher, uh, incentives are higher. Uh, we'll wait and see. We'll, we'll, we'll put our money somewhere else and see if they can, can show a better first quarter. I, I think some of that is going on. D David, just quickly, uh, is, this, is the strategy of GM and other automobile makers, is it uh, all based on sub $3 a gallon gasoline? Pretty much. Well, let's put it this way. It, it's based on some price of gasoline that doesn't make consumers uh, buy what they're buying today. And the reason I say that is, you know, we've said in the past, oh, my God, $2 a gallon gas, no one will buy a truck again. It hit it, and they did. Oh, $3 a gallon gas, no one will buy an SUV again, and they did. There's a magic number in there. I'd say it's probably more like 350 where consumers really start to change. But your point is, is basically right. If gas gets very expensive, then the market goes back to passenger cars. That's lower margins, and, and that's not good for anybody in the industry. 
Dave Wilson, uh, I want to get your sense just on a broader level of how much of the response to GM's earnings is being colored by a broader sense that the auto industry is plateauing at best and headed for a slight dip. I mean, are you seeing reactions and shares that kind of gives insight on that? Well, you want to talk about plateau. I mean, GM shares uh, peaked back in December 2013. They've basically been up and down since then. So, you know, today being a down day, you're really talking about, you know, more fluctuation for a stock that you know, has kind of topped out. Uh, and, and you look at Ford, I mean, you know, it's come down the last couple of years as well. I mean, so it, it's not like the boom times that we've seen in the auto industry lately have led to boom times for the shares. So, you know, there's the concern about what happens down the road. I mean, certainly they're vulnerable to whatever gasoline prices are going to be. And we've seen crude oil pick up in the past several months. But beyond that, it's really just a matter of how long do things keep going? That's as much as anything a focus here. David, can I just get your thoughts on some of the other automakers? Because I'm looking at the shares of Fiat Chrysler, and they are down uh, as well, down about three and a half percent. Does this do anything to that idea of putting Fiat together with GM? Well, Th- that idea has not really – first off, GM doesn't want to do it. I-, I think GM shares initially didn't react so hot when that idea was floated. And one of the reasons is we- we've seen auto mergers in the past not really work so well. Ren- Renault-Nissan may be the lone example, um, but you know, Daimler Chrysler was a big failure. A lot of the joint ventures haven't worked out. And if you look at GM, you know, once if GM were to take Fiat Chrysler, you still have this passenger car lineup. You still have a lot of plants and, and, and redundancy they need to take out. And then you're managing like 11 brands. That was the problem GM had uh, before bankruptcy. Right. And, and, you know, it's just it becomes very unwieldy. So, you know, I, I don't. I've never really uh, seen a great case for this, other than from the Fiat Chrysler side, which right. is, hey, we need scale and we need investment dollars. Right, we got technology. We got we got to go on. Uh, we got to move on. Thanks very much, David Welch, Bureau Chief, Bloomberg News from our Detroit bureau. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.